0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Adaptable CEO. Today, we are thrilled to welcome our very first guest on the pod, Haysia Atherton, an entrepreneurial trailblazer in courageous leadership, founder of Empowered Women in Trades, where she inspires people across all industries, in particular women navigating their professional development within skilled trades. Haysia was named 2024 Telstra Best of Business Awards winner in Victoria. She was in the top 100 women in construction 2023. She also won an Australian Enterprise Award in 2024. And she was also named as one of the top 30 women disruptors by the NYC Journal in 2021.
1: Hacia had a life-altering accident in 2017 and has since faced constant stereotyping of not looking disabled and integrated the breaking of stereotypes into her leadership, whether that be what a trainee looks like or what someone who is disabled looks like. Hacia, welcome to The Adaptable CEO and thank you so
2: much for joining us and being our very first guest. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation.
0: conversation perfect okay so we will be asking every guest that comes on our podcast this question so you are the very first so no pressure (laughs) (laughs) now we know that what consumes the mind is reflected in how we live our lives. so we are curious to know more about what is consuming or interesting you most at the moment. So I ask you, what are the three things that you are thinking most about at the moment, whether it be business, personal, sort of free reign?
2: Yeah, well, every day I first of all start off in a lot of pain. So I have something called complex regional pain syndrome. And so the first thing that comes into my mind is how can I show up and be the best version of myself today? with the pain that I'm dealing with today. So I don't compare myself to what I was yesterday and I don't compare myself to what I was a week ago, a month ago or anything like that. And really each day, just think about who can I be today? What's my best self today? and depending on my pain levels, the answer to that will always be different. So that's a question that I wake up daily thinking about, as well as a mantra from Muhammad Ali goes through my mind every day, because it's actually written on my uh, mirror in my bathroom, and it's suffer now and live forever, a champion. So for me, I always think about never giving up and creating that space to fall apart and cry. There's been many a times I've locked myself in the bathroom, put the shower on and just sobbed so hard so that the other family members couldn't hear me crying. But just allowing myself to suffer and when you are living with the challenges that I live with, you've got to create that space to be able to feel the pain, to be able to feel the overwhelm, to be able to just be okay with not being okay and allow yourself to suffer in that moment and then live a champion forever and come out of that space. It's the same with my fitness. I go to the boxing gym doctors told me i may never walk again in any meaningful way and i've run half marathons and i continue to run and so for me that's something that always goes through my head on how can i push how can i push stereotypes how can i push my own boundaries how can i push the boundaries of others around me whether that's thinking that women don't belong in trades or thinking that uh, as we mentioned disabled people should look a certain way or should do a certain thing or should live in a certain way of life. So I'm always thinking around, yeah, how do I challenge that in myself and how do I challenge that in other people's minds? And then the third thing is in every challenge, there's an opportunity for transformation. So every day I'm seeing where is that challenge, where is that opportunity and what transformation can I do for myself and the people around me?
0: I love that so much. You've just inspired me so much already and it hasn't even been five minutes.
1: <laughs> we could also wrap it up there. That was incredible.
2: That's the podcast.
1: <laughs> Done. But I think that idea of suffering is so interesting. And I was having a conversation actually on the weekend about suffering and someone asking me about, do I still suffer? How do you actually deal with that when it's actually constant do you wait until you stop suffering to actually make any progress in your life and I think clearly like as you've just said you don't but you do have to make space for it at times like the going into the bathroom and crying in the shower and my favorite place to cry is alone in my car so I think we all have our favorite places
2: yeah Oh, there's been plenty of car crying too. Uh, I've, I've got a diverse range of crying locations.
0: <laughs> Do you have tinted windows as well? I I, I get self conscious sometimes because my windows aren't tinted enough.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I've actually had people knock on the car window and be like, "Are you okay?" Oh, <laughs> um, I'm like, no, but that's okay. It's I'm okay it not out. to be okay. I'm just getting it out. I'm just getting it out and. Uh, as as anyone that goes through constant ongoing health issues will understand it is a roller coaster ride the anxiety that you face just going and getting an x-ray or a cat scan or anything like that when it's constant I've had almost 30 procedures now done to my body since the horse riding accident and I've got more to go and constant blood tests and scans and the trauma does build up and for some people again that they are like I don't understand why you're getting anxious about an x-ray and I'm like because it's not just an x-ray it is facing the trauma it's facing the pain it's facing the reality it's the unknown of what's that x-ray going to say in my telehealth a few days post the x-ray is it going to be my hip has to be replaced my pubic bone has to be fused the cord in your computer has broken like it's not just going in and getting an x-ray or it's not just going and facing that challenge in the moment it's what is the unknown about that and I think that's for life for everyone it's facing the unknown is what creates that anxiety and for a lot of people that don't go through constant health challenges It can be hard for them to find the empathy and support you through having an absolute panic attack about going and getting a blood test. Or sometimes I have panic attacks just going and getting my medication from the chemist and people are like, how hard is it to fill out a script? It's not about the script. Mm. It's about what you're living in and facing the challenge that you're facing every single day when you have a ongoing health issue Mm, absolutely
0: and do you find that you've got a good support system around you because sometimes I like for myself I feel like I do I've got amazing friends and family especially my family are very understanding but a lot of the time I'm alone like doing the things that you said as well like going to pick up medication going to different appointments do you find it easier to do those things alone or with having some support there with you?
2: Definitely the support. My little sister, both my husband and my little sister, are such amazing support networks for me and they really understand and appreciate it as well. So my husband will often go and get my scripts for me uh, to take that off my plate. That's something that he can do. And again, my little sister will come for x-rays or scans or or different things like that. And it is like, it is a very lonely, isolating feeling uh, and having those people just to physically be there and sometimes <laughs> physically like push you into the room mm. is that kind comfort that you need now of course you can't always have that and that's where a lot of the work I do with positive psychology um, really helps me and even in my darkest moments I come to gratitude and I sit there and I'm like so grateful for this challenge that I'm facing right now because it's building my strength it's building my resilience and I'm going through it for a reason and I don't know what that reason is right now but I have that hope and I have that gratitude that this this challenge that I'm facing is, is for raisin my grandma always would say like even this shall pass and one of the reasons you're sailing through tough waters is because your demons can't swim so those those real challenges that life gives us they give it to us for a reason and I truly believe that.
1: Definitely I truly believe that too and it's so interesting how those sayings can be so powerful in getting you through those hard times like this too shall pass is one that I've heard so many times and it just can give you strength in those really difficult moments or just having scans when you have really bad anxiety and things around that. So we did mention a little bit in the intro about a life-changing accident that you had but to take our listeners back when did you actually begin horse riding and
2: competing? So I've got Some of my earliest memories around horse riding when I was a little, little girl, I was put on horses. And then I got my first pony for my seventh birthday, Honey Bay. Uh, She definitely taught me how to stay on a very high attitude horse. Let's just put it that way. But she was my best friend. I loved her. So I started competing on her uh, when I was seven. My dad sailed for Australia and had his green and gold jacket for that amazing achievement and I always wanted to get my own green and gold jacket, definitely not in in sailing. I'm I'm pretty rubbish at it, to be honest, (laughs) as much as dad tried to pass on his wisdom and skill, it didn't really stick. Uh, So for me, it was always in horses and uh, went up from that kind of pony club competing, barrel racing, all of that fun stuff into eventing. And I had a relatively bad horse riding accident and eventing and I had a um, hit my head very hard and had swelling on the brain, bru- um, bru- bruising on the brain and also um, kind of like short-term amnesia and was in hospital only for a week after that one. Uh, but after that bad horse riding accident, I was like, okay, need to do a safer version of riding. So I really niched down on dressage. And found my natural skill set. So. Really kind of started to excel in dressage, got to an international level, was training my young horse to do the last qualifying score to go to the World Equestrian Games. And that's when the accident happened. So she decided she wanted to do a bit of a role reversal and reared up uh, vertically. I fell off and she thought it was her time to sit on top of me instead of me sitting on top of her. Problem is she weighed 600 kilos. And my body obviously didn't cope with that. So I was incredibly lucky when I was airlifted to Alfred Hospital. The doctors informed my family that there was millimetres in no longer being here. And it's very uncertain whether I'll be able to walk again in any kind of successful way. Luckily, after a lot of surgeries, six months in hospital, I taught myself to stand and I taught myself to walk again. And I successfully walked out of hospital after six months of living in hospital and just gone from strength to strength after that, uh, albeit lots of different surgeries. I've had my right hip replaced. I've had uh, both my SI joints fused. I've got two computers inside me to deal with all of the uh, nerve damage and nerve issues uh, that I have, as well as a whole bunch of other surgeries and procedures and uh, ongoing operations. And then, yeah, I also have the complex regional pain syndromes just to to top it off.
0: Icing on the cake.
2: Yeah, you know, a little cherry on the cake, a little, little cherry on the cake. Your
0: attitude is so inspiring. Like just how you even speak about everything you've gone through.
1: Do you remember a lot from your time in hospital?
2: Yes. Yeah, I do. I remember the whole accident as well. Um, So I remember everything that happened there. And this one, the sound of of the body crushing is just gives me chills. And then the whole time in hospital, that was very challenging, more challenging than the accident itself. I think you're so full of adrenaline and and you've got all of this kind of natural instincts happening to get through the accident. And it wasn't until I actually landed in the helicopter, the helicopter door opened and I saw this massive medical team and the looks on their face that I went, oh, shit, (laughs) you know this is bad. This is not great. And then hospital is very tough because you've got that balance of the doctors wanting to be realistic and your medical team wanting to be realistic with you. And you've got a whole medical team from OTs to physios, to nutrition, to psychiatrists, to everyone um, that are trying to do this balance of keeping you hopeful of of a better future but also very realistic that life is going to change for you and every day we had to do goal goal setting, you know, one, two, three goals and the first couple of months I was completely bed bound to, to even go outside a whole medical team would have to transfer me onto this little bed that then I got like strapped down onto with all of these straps and whoever wanted to take me outside would have to navigate the hospital uh, hospital corridors with this big bed thing and then I could sit outside um, in the sun strapped strapped down into this bed and then pushed all the way back in and that was what we had to go through to be able to just get outside and, and feel the sun on my skin but still even in in that moment, number three goal was walking again. And that created a lot of tension and friction between me and my medical team because they were like, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. And I'm like, nah, I'm never going to give up. We're going to make it happen. I don't care how we're going to make it happen. It's going to happen. So that was very, very challenging to dig deep and find that courage to really believe in that voice that I had inside me of don't give up, keep going and not fall into trusting what the experts around me were saying and just handing over my life to other people and just going, well, that's what they've told me is going to happen, so that's what I'm going to accept. And I think that's really helped with what I'm doing now with Empowered Women in Trades because they always get told women can't be tradies, they're not stuff, da, 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 they're not t- tough enough, they're not strong enough. Then I generally show those people my x-rays and I'm like, well, I'm a woman. These are my x-rays. I survived a horse sitting on top of me. So don't tell me women aren't tough. Also, uh, I haven't personally had a baby, but I know a lot of women that have had babies. <laughs> and I don't know if you guys would be able to survive that journey either. So don't tell me that women aren't tough enough to be trady. Oh,
0: my God. Absolutely. We are <laughs> we're the strongest sex. That's for
2: sure. So, yeah, but that finding what I call that inner child courage. So when I was learning to walk again, um, it was a very interesting experience doing it. As an adult versus when you see children do it and, and children just have this resilience of just never giving up. They just stand up again and fall over and stand up and fall over and stand up and fall over. And and we all went through that journey. We all have the courage to be able to do that. We all taught ourselves how to talk, to eat, to ride bicycles, or, or walk, or stand, or whatever we can physically do with our body, but when we transition into adulthood, we seem to lose that self-belief and we seem to lose that courage. So in hospital, it was such a journey to connect with that inner that inner child, that inner self-belief, that inner courage and find that I can do it. I'm never going to give up. I'm going to keep pushing mindset and attitudes because you've got the epic pain as well. So I had to learn how to dance with my pain, I call it, because it is a bit of a dance, you know, you have to kind of mentally put it to the side and dance around it and then bring it to you and allow it, have its space to just hurt and have its space to consume you uh, so that you can then put it down again to go do something else. And that's what I learned in hospital is how to have a very proactive relationship with my pain so that I could learn to walk again um, and, and do it successfully.
0: I love that. And what would you say from everything you've been through with the accident, what, if you're comfortable with sharing, what are the lasting impacts now on your life? Obviously, mentally and emotionally, like you've built an amazing business and it's so, so character building for you. But can you talk us through some of the major impacts it's had?
2: For me, a lot of it was redefining what success looked like. Because for me, every day it is different. Um, some days after major surgery of having my hip replaced, success was just standing up um, for, for a few seconds or a couple of minutes. And I used to really beat myself up about that. I used to be like, you used to be an international dressage rider and you're so pathetic. You can't even stand up for a few seconds. And for me, that big challenge is to really nail that negative self-talk because I still do that. Like sometimes when I have really bad days, I catch myself looking, my, looking at myself in the mirror and I'm like, why can't you do this and why aren't you doing this? And you should be doing this and you should be able to do that and really start absolutely pounding myself with this negative negative self-talk um, which puts you in this spiral of negativity and that's where I break it with the gratitude I take the moment to be grateful for the millimeters that the universe gave me and when I really catch myself in that negative self-talk or if you can't do it or um, saying being being an entrep- entrepreneur and in, in a male-dominated industry I catch myself saying like You shouldn't be in this room because what right do you have to be sitting in this room with ministers or what right do you have to be sitting in this room advising um, males in the construction industry on how they should be leading or how they could transform their culture and all those kinds of different things. And, yeah, the lasting impact, I think, for me, I used to be so just confident in myself with with where I was going with my dressage and I just had this belief I was going to represent Australia and I just had this unbreakable, unconditional self-belief and self-confidence and the lasting effect of the accident is really that almost empowered negative gremlin inside me. It has such a greater hold on me that it never had before. And it fuels itself on the pain. It fuels itself on the judgment that I get from people I park in a disabled park and people have a go at me and be like, you're not disabled. You're not this. You don't belong in in that car park or Um, you don't belong in the support groups because I don't look disabled or I don't act disabled. And then I start negative talking myself. I'm like, well, maybe I am stepping into a space that I shouldn't be taking up because maybe I don't deserve to be disabled or maybe I don't deserve to be um, receiving the support that other disabled people get because I don't look disabled. I'm not what society tells me disabled should be. And I think for me, that's that really deep ingrained impact of feeling like I don't belong in any base. I'm not fully abled. I'm not what society deems disabled should look like. So for me, I often feel lost and like I don't belong in any any world. And that's really lonely and really tough. And I feel sometimes I can't identify with, with fully abled people because of what I'm going through. But again, I don't feel fully accepted in in the disabled community either because I don't look disabled. I wear high heels, I run, I'm active and chronic pain, you can't see chronic pain. I'm not in a wheelchair, I don't have walking aids, but it hurts every step that I take. So the lasting impact is loneliness to sum that down really is I often feel very lonely.
1: Yeah, I feel like you've outlined so many lasting impacts there and it just yeah resonates so deeply with me I feel like Tiff with you as well.
0: Yep. Absolutely everything you were saying hey CR was just the from the disabled parking I have those exact thoughts as well and I don't know about you but how many times have I gone to park in a disabled spot and i I literally get pain from carrying shopping bags sometimes and I just get eyes and I get hand gestures and then I'm pointing to my to my sign in my car and
2: and then just, they tell you you've stolen it from your grandma and I'm like what? oh it's, <laughs> it's, like you just stole that from your grandma and I'm like okay it's
0: so horrible isn't it yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, gosh. it is it's tough and I drive a nice car and people Mm. judge that they're like disabled people can't drive that car and it's like why can't disabled people drive a nice car like what do they have to be in a a, a, what is a disabled person's car and this is the frustration of the stereotyping and I get the same in, in in trades like what is a tradie what is a disabled person it's it's just people don't lead with empathy they just lead with with their perception of what someone should look like and what someone should do when they when they look like that. And when I step out of a nice car with high heels on in a nice dress in a disabled car park, yeah, they're like, nah, you, you don't belong here. You've, you're abusing the system. You've stolen the disabled park from your grandma. So therefore you go park further away or somewhere and then you push through all of this pain because you feel shame being a disabled person but the society judging you because you don't look like a disabled person is this really really weird experience because you're like well I'm actually proud that I go through all of this and I'm engaging with society at such a functioning level and I feel proud about that but then you also feel ashamed that you don't look like a disabled person. It's a it's a very very weird mixed emotion experience.
0: And they want to keep you in a box. It feels like, and we're constantly trying to break free of that box. Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
2: yeah exactly. Exactly. So it's it's an it's a unique lonely experience sometimes
1: yeah it it definitely can be and I think especially hearing that you know lasting impact that that negative kind of gremlin was able to get more of a voice actually really surprised me when you're talking about you know the courageous inner child who's learning to walk and is falling over and keeps getting up because I'd never thought of it in that way and I think when we embrace our inner child in that way it sounds so so powerful and it sounds like that inner child was actually able to really come out um, post accident. Accident too. But in meeting other people that have had accidents and then have, I guess, recovered to an extent, I feel like there's a big perception that, you know, you have an accident, you recover and then you're better is that something that you've experienced or faced yeah
2: often when I've got to go in for another procedure or another thing people very close to me are like wow this is still going like you've got more medical things or like why are you still going to the doctor or why are you still seeing the physio your accident was almost eight years ago so even people very close to me still struggle to comprehend and understand that what I have gone through is life-changing and now there is a life maintenance schedule of keeping my body and Humpty Dumpty stuck together. And that is psychologists, psychiatrists, physios, you know, medical appointments, checkups, scans, more surgeries. And that's just my life. And people are very much, yeah, it happened eight years ago, you should be over it. I'm like, well, tell tell my body and my delaminating cartilage in my left hip that it's eight years. It should be over it. Like it doesn't happen that way. Yeah. It absolutely
1: doesn't. Things don't just suddenly change. No.
2: get better
1: overnight. Yeah.
2: yeah. And also the trauma side of it as well. People are like, why are you still anxious about having surgeries? You've gone through 30 of them. I'm like, I've gone through 30 of them. That's why I'm anxious about having surgeries. Like, and some of them have gone bad and we've had, Complications and there's been some really horrific experiences. So like, what do you want me to do? Like, skip, hop, jump into the surgery room and be like, "Yay, here I am, 31 times, let's go, party town!" Like, no. The more you, the more you get traumatized, the more it is traumatic. But a lot of times, people don't respect that and won't let me have that space to have the anxiety because in their minds it was eight years ago I should be over it by now like why am I still having psychological um, effects or if I'm having nightmares still about the accident which I do have nightmares about the accident sometimes people will say it was eight years ago why are you having nightmares about it and really dismissing Um, the long-term effects of trauma on on our minds and on our body. Yeah, I think
1: it can just be so hard because like you've said, there is this expectation, you know, the more surgeries you've had, the more you should be used to it. It should just be a normal thing for you now. And that's definitely something that I've kind of experienced having so many myself that you go in for your 20 millionth surgery, it should just be another day, but it actually gets worse because it's that compounding trauma and that you know, that last one didn't go well and there were the complications and it can happen again this time. Or what if I wake up and they say X, Y, Z, like they did last time. And uh-huh. yeah, people don't understand. And I think it puts so much pressure on you as the, you know, s- sick person, just because I don't have a better word for it, to put up that front that you are doing really well, you're coping fine, you don't need any extra support. And it's just, yeah, it's a really difficult position to be in. So I can
2: understand it. It is. And sometimes I feel guilty of leaning on my support network so hard and feel like I just take and there's nothing I can give back because I can't support them in certain things or like my husband's the one that does all of the food cooking and everything because it hurts for me um, to stand up in the kitchen and spend 20 minutes cooking a meal and I can cook it but then I'll be in so much pain I will feel nauseous that I won't eat the food. So that's, that's the role that he has to take and it makes me feel guilty sometimes sitting there on the couch watching him cook dinner going, I just can't offer to do that for us. Um and he's beautiful. He's like, there's so many, you know you do my books and there's yeah it's a value exchange in the relationship, and he doesn't put that on me. That's me sitting there feeling guilty that I am taking from my support network and not giving back, which is a very, I guess that self mindset and self. Thing that you do same with my little sister she's like I love spending time with my big sister whether it's in a hospital bed or whether it's out dancing on the dance floor or getting our nails done I love your company it doesn't matter if it's in hospital or at the nail salon it's it's your company that I love so you're not taking from me but that's again something I think people with long-term health challenges often feel that weight that we're a burden on the ones around us and we're a burden on society and it's a challenge that I still face on my really dark days. I feel like a burden on my family. I feel like a burden on my team at work as well that sometimes they got to pick up the slack because... I'm having a really bad um, pain episode or a bad pain day. Uh, and to the point, sometimes I feel like a burden on my doctors because I'm like, I'm here again. I'm asking for them again, which I'm definitely not a burden. If anything, I'm their like meal ticket to the Mal- Maldives.
0: giving <laughs> <laughs> them business?
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a fantastic client for all of my (laughs) medical team, but it's that psychological position that you start feeling just like a burden on everyone.
0: It's so, so difficult. And I know for a fact, like both Anya and I, yeah, we can relate so much to that. It's, oh, it's mentally exhausting so much of the time, but yeah, I really want to know how did being a competitive athlete help you handle recovery and adapt to life after your accident? And how did it help you in business and what you're doing today? And do you think that the skills gained from sports are
2: similar in these situations? 100%. Like business is war, and recovering from an accident is war. So, learning those skill sets of discipline, a training plan, that mindset of always trying to improve yourself, whether it's in the pool, like a couple more seconds, or running a couple more seconds in dressage, it, it's doing a certain movement better or, or riding better. As an athlete, you're always looking for better. You're always looking looking. looking for, how do you improve things? So when I was learning to stand um, and walk again I would go through that real analytical mindset of I would stand up and I would fall over and I would sit there and be like right what happened I was too far to the left I was too far to the right I was too backwards I was too forwards and just that really analytical mindset and then the competitive spirit came in it was like yesterday it was 10 seconds today it's going to be 12 seconds tomorrow it's going to be 15 seconds and just that real pumping my up and finding the c- competitive spirit of being a competitor against yourself. And I think high level athletes, people often think, oh, they're out there trying to beat that athlete and beat that athlete and beat. No, you're not. You always are trained to beat yourself. You're always looking at your own personal best. You're always looking at your own score and you're always competing against yourself. And that's as a high level athlete, what our coaches train us to do. It's always Analyze your weaknesses, get better at that, supercharge your strengths. Like it's a very internal looking lens. And when I was out there riding, I wasn't looking at who else was in the draw or what horse and rider was before me or after me. I was just what I had to do on that day to ride the best dressage test I could possibly do. So I brought that mindset into the hospital with me. Um, Again, training plans. I would work with all of my medical team of like, what's our training plan? What's our this? What's this, this? What's our goals? What are we going to achieve? What's, what are we comparing it against? And um, just turned it into a, yeah, almost like an athletic training camp inside the hospital, which I think really contributed to my success. So I took the emotion out of it too. And as a high level athlete, you do get trained to take the emotion out of it. If you have a bad day on on the field whether that's dressage or swimming or something like that you d- you don't bring the emotion into it you bring the ad- analytical brain into it and that's where in business and success in business is so important you've got to take the personal out of it because as I said before business is war and being an entrepreneur and a startup you're going to get kicked in the teeth every moment of every day and you might have a win but then you're going to have five no's or five issues or all of these kind of things. So it's that resilience and taking the emotion out of what you're going through and really bringing that analytical lens that how do I be a better person on the field today, whether that's recovering from surgery or whether that is doing a better business pitch or writing a tender better or leading your team better. It's always how do I, how do, I do better and how do I take my failure? and fail forward and fail fast and fail quicker because as a as an athlete that's what you're trained to do you screw up you've got to let go especially in dressage like you've got so many different movements and if you screw up one movement and if you stay in that headspace about that movement you're going to stuff up the next five movements so you got to let go of your failures. In the moment you stuffed at that, that movement, who cares? You're on to the next movement. And both with learning to walk again, in both in business, that has been invaluable to me because I stumble and I'm like, whatever, stumbled, move on. Whatever, stumbled, move on. Yeah, that's such I love
1: a, that so much. much. Yeah,
2: such a good way of looking at it.
1: And you know, competing against yourself and just how you manage that hospital team, it sounds like managing a business. It really does. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> I feel like we've already spoken a bit about like that you identify as having a disability. Is that right?
2: Yes. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, it's taken me time to get there. Like, as I said, the accident happened eight years ago and it was probably only towards the second half of last year that I really stepped into that space and let go of the shame that I was holding about that. And it wasn't the shame of having a disability. I felt like because I didn't look disabled, because I didn't act disabled, because I didn't fit into the stereotype of being disabled, if I stepped into that space, I will somehow taking something away from other disabled people and that was the shame that I was carrying and I didn't want to take away from others that were going through real massive challenges as well and then I realized like that in itself is doing a disadvantage to disabled people or people that aren't fully abled because they feel like they have to hide in the shadows. Like I felt like I had to hide in the shadows because my disability wasn't socially acceptable. So I've started to really step out of that and and be proud that, yes, I'm disabled. Yes, I have a chronic pain issue. Uh, Yes, my body's falling apart. I've got computers inside me and I no longer feel that shame of, of being disabled. Do
1: you know where you got that belief from that by you know accepting support or accepting help or whatever else is taking away from someone else because I actually had the exact same belief up until not that long ago like I didn't want to apply for NDIS because I thought that being an NDIS participant meant that someone else wouldn't be and just simple things like that by taking the disabled park someone else wouldn't have that park like all of those beliefs I had them Where did you get it from? Because maybe I got it from the same place.
2: Yeah, I think for me, a lot of it was um, potentially going through and being in hospital for that six months and being around people that were severely um, disabled. And when I was in the wheelchair, I kind of felt I had a right to be disabled because I had the thing that showed I was disabled, the wheelchair or the walking frame, or I had an external thing that justified it. And I think people therefore accepted it. But as soon as I started getting better and getting out of the wheelchair and getting off the walking frames um, and then into the high heels or started running or started exercising, the languaging of people around me and the acceptance of people around me to be able to put forward that I'm disabled. It didn't come from the, the disabled community. it came from the you know fully able community starting to shame me of going, "Oh well, you know, you don't look disabled and like you clearly don't need the support that other people do and that's selfish of you for taking that support up when someone who truly needs it, um, and all of that kind of stuff. And it just started really weighing on me. I think I just started buying into when I was parking in this disabled um, parking spot and someone being like, you're taking that away from someone that truly needs it and you clearly don't need it. And just taking that other people's perceptions on board really heavily. And then I distanced myself from from the disabled community. So I think then I started creating this own narrative in my mind or well, they don't accept me or they see me as an outsider and I started isolating myself from from the community as well with this narrative that I just started writing writing myself. And when I connect with anyone that has some kind of um, disability, not one of them have ever gone, well, like, well, I've got more of a disability than you, therefore I deserve this car park and you don't, like, two disabled people haven't pulled into the car park and us fought about who deserves the car park more. Um, So for me, it's more come from the abled body community um, shaming me because I don't look disabled. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me, actually.
1: I, I had a family member before I got access to NDIS actually say, you know, well, I wouldn't want my taxpayer money going to support someone like you. And <laughs> It's like, oh, God. But it, it's true. It's that sentiment from people that don't have a good understanding of disability. Um, having
2: conversations
1: with people that don't look disabled, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, it's- yeah it's 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 it's, yeah it's tough and it's true and I started the journey of NDIS and then yeah really freaked out backed off convinced myself that I didn't deserve it even though all of the doctors all of the paperwork everything someone told me I was just gaming the system and because I'm a CEO of a startup company and because I have live in a nice suburb and my husband's got a great job and everything like that that I was gaming the system and I shouldn't be doing it and I really took that on board and I've put a pin in going through the NDIS support and it's really interesting that challenge that you have of, of going well Should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? Am I gaming the system? Like it's this really, it's very complicated and confusing.
0: Extremely, I can definitely relate with you, Hacia. Like I have chronic neurological Lyme disease, and if you were to go and Google right now, Lyme disease, it says it's curable within four weeks with antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And it's been—I'm 28 now, and I've been sick since I was around 22. And it's not going anywhere, unfortunately. So I have the exact same thoughts about applying for NDIS. I haven't applied yet either. And then I've got a really close friend of mine. She's got chronic Lyme and she's on NDIS and she absolutely deserves it. And I have that inner critic in my head yeah. as well that I battle with daily. Totally, totally understand you there. Now, shifting gears slightly, but to your career, would you say your career direction changed after your accident and how did you adapt or shift the way you did business? Were you in business prior to your accident or were you primarily an athlete?
2: So there was a huge shift because my career or or work was secondary to my riding. So it was just something I did to feed the horses, to pay the bills. I was just like waiting for the clock to hit five o'clock so I could be out the door and down to my horses and everything like that. So I bounced around a lot at the beginning of my career. So I I started off in law and I wanted to be a commercial law barrister. Ironically, 18-year-old, 19-year-old me in Owen Dixon chambers looking at how male-dominated the chambers were, how female barristers were treated and everything like that, I pivoted out of that space and, like, I don't want to take on or live in that environment, which the irony is now what I'm doing, (laughs) of championing. Women into Australia's most male dominated industry. <laughs> so then I pivoted off that and I was kind of quite lost. And I um, started doing psychology management marketing at uni, again, just focusing on the horses, but horses were overtaking uni. I wasn't going to the classes, blah, blah, blah. So I left uni and did a year of fashion design because I was just like, okay, got to do something fun and enjoyable. I was modeling at the time. So went off and did the fashion design, and that really fit around my horses as well. After finishing that year of fashion design, I was like, as much as I enjoy it, it's probably not a forever career path for me. Uh, But the horse bills were still there, so I went and did financial planning. Again, couldn't stay in that industry, just there was a values disalignment between myself and the industry. Welcome Royal Commission, that happened in that industry. So I was working in the industry pre the Royal Commission. And as much as the career was secondary to me, I've always been very connected to what my values are and making sure I was in spaces that aligned with those values. So then I went back to work for my family company that manufactures medical infection control equipment and that I found a really nice balance there because I was able to uh, do stuff with customer service and sales and finance and kind of really spend some time in the family business. With my horses being the priority, family business and work being secondary to that. And I went back to uni and did my commerce degree, majoring in accounting, because I was really enjoying that kind of finance side. And that was just, yeah, it was just something that I did, enjoyed it. Well, you know, didn't enjoy it or not enjoy it. It was just that thing that I rocked up to every day to earn the dollar-dollar bills, to chase the dream off dressage. And that's what really crushed me when the horse riding accident happened because I feel I lost my identity, I lost my purpose, I lost my direction, I lost the reason that I would get up every day and go through the motions of the day. So that's when I really had to think about what life looked like. And both my dad and my grandma really advised me to lean into the commerce degree that I majored in accounting and study my CPA, Because regardless of my physical outcome, whether I was going to be in a wheelchair forever or not, I could always be an accountant from a hospital bed or from anywhere else. So I started doing the CPA and for me, that was such a guiding North Star and rock during hospital because it was consistent. It always made sense, you know, at the end of the day, a balance sheet balances, no matter what's going on in your very unbalanced life, balance sheet balance. And I started to really find security and safety in having a, a career so then that passion started to grow for the career I was like ah you know there's the excitement there's the joy there's the competitiveness everything that I felt like I had lost in my horse riding I started to find in my career so that's when the focus really shifted and pivoted and I started to get very curious about all right what is an actual career being in number one spot look like versus it just being a supporting act in wanting to ride for Australia and so that's when I started to really think about what's meaningful for me what is going to excite me every day to get out of bed like the horses did and I started to get super, super serious about my career after my horse riding accident. That sounds
1: very exciting and I sort of know what the next part of the career is and I'm very excited about this question, but then what inspired Empowering Women in Trades?
2: Yeah, so that kind of started when I was working at the family company and starting to look at how we future-proof the factory with all of the trades in there as well as my lived experience. Of spending some time working on the factory floor. So as much as I've grown up in the factory, grown up in the family business, and was surrounded by amazing tradesmen, as soon as I put my high vis on and my steel cap boots and went into the factory, I all of a sudden started blaming my gender for not being able to strip wires or not being able to welds perfectly. And it was the amazing tradesmen around me that is like the welder doesn't know if you're a girl or a guy, like you know. <laughs> you're blaming your gender but the welder doesn't know the pliers don't know whether you're a girl or a guy but again when I stepped out of the factory in my high vis and steel cap boots I would get the you don't belong in trades or like you're not a tradie and all of this when I'd go get my lunch up the road or something like that which this experience happened before the horse riding accident so when the horse riding accident happened and then I started going through that journey that we've just spoken about of again, receiving that you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. I really combined the two experiences to like, right, something needs to be done about this because One, we're creating such shame for women wanting to go into these male-dominated industries. We're creating an environment that we get them in and then the industry is telling them they don't belong, so then they leave. And part of working at my family company, when I thought about the idea of reaching out to schools and getting female students into the factory to have a look at career pathways of welding and fitter and turner and electrical, everything that I really enjoy because when I was in the factory I fell in love with welding like if I have my time again you'd be sitting here talking to a qualified welder and who knows eventually I might go do my welding qualifications but the school said no we won't send our female students to go and have this experience and so that's when I really realized this was some systemic Broken issues in our schooling system, in society, around the concept of getting women into trades. The women represented 2% of skilled trades at the time in 2020. We're at 3% now. So, four years later, we've gone, gone 1%. Well, onwards and upwards, because well, by 2030, we're going to have female representation at 30%. That's my goal. We've got seven years to go from 3%. Incredible. Thirty percent, <laughs> and it's, it's going
0: to happen. happen. <laughs> you leading this change, hundred percent, Hacia. It will happen.
2: It will, <laughs> it will happen. Achieve bigger things, really. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it will, it will happen. But that was the inspiration behind it. I think my own personal journey of really enjoying the trades, and then also reflecting on my unconscious bias and the unconscious bias of my family, because I'm a fifth generation plumbing family. And the trades was never put in front of me as a career path, nor did I ask to ever experience that career pathway. So that really made me start to think about the unconscious bias that women in our society are having. And I wanted to create a really safe space for women to be curious, to be vulnerable, to come in and really let go of that unconscious bias that they were saying to themselves that they don't belong in this industry or they don't belong in this space. Because I have five generations of plumbers behind me, a family company that employs 30, 40 trades people. And I felt that I couldn't ask to access that career opportunity. So what hope did other women have out there that weren't anywhere near the industry. So I really wanted to be that person to open up the doors of opportunity to create those safe space for women to be vulnerable in their journey of getting curious about trades and then be able to support them to make informed decisions if the skilled trades industry is an industry for them. And I saw a gap in the market because a lot of Things out there are either pre-apprenticeships which narrow you down into just one trade and you got to commit for like 10, 12 weeks to that. I wanted to be able to create one-day programs up to three week programs that we do. So really mini programs, but allow the women to explore a range of different trades and a range of different industries as well. So if you're coming into one of our programs and we're doing an electrical activity, we won't just say, if you like electrical, go be an A grade electrician. There is the automotive industry. There's the manufacturing industry. Uh, You need to think about so many other things. Do you like going to the same place every day? Or do you like going to lots of different places? If you get anxious about driving somewhere you don't necessarily know or you've never driven there before, the construction industry might not be for you. The manufacturing industry might be for you. Do you enjoy being indoors or outdoors? Like there's so many other things to consider around picking a trade and picking a trade industry. And I felt what was out there didn't really support the female journey into trades, which we know research shows that women won't apply for a job unless you meet like 90% of all the requirements and everything like that. But women don't have enough information to make those informed decisions if trades is for them or if the construction industry is for them or the manufacturing industry is for them. So I really wanted to Design experience into trades that supported the feminine. Journey into trades.
0: I love that, and it would be exactly like so unique to each gender. So, how do you continue to engage with the community you've created with empowered women's in trades?
2: So, we have a range of events. We've actually got our big gala coming up in a month's time on the 23rd of February, and we've got a whole bunch of different awards. And we really use that gala to celebrate the phenomenal men, women, and organisations doing great work in this space. We've also got other tradie lady events that we run. And I feel so blessed that a lot of the tradey ladies actually personally connect with me on my Instagram or through LinkedIn and everything. So I get to be a part of their journey and see their success happen. And then through Empowered Women in Trades, we have more of a formalized community. But I just feel very blessed that I have that informal relationship with the community as well. And for me, it's really supporting that long-term success when a woman graduates from our programs and goes into a pre apprenticeship or something. I love following her on her social media and see her go into her first year from an apprenticeship, her second year from an apprenticeship, and just really keep an eye on making sure that they're progressing, but also giving them opportunities to share their story, whether that's through our newsletter or whether that's sending them to other platforms that I know that are putting up stories about their journeys and everything like that. And just through the power of storytelling really bringing the community together by sharing our stories and telling our stories and through that really smashing the shame that can sometimes be felt about being a tradeswoman because they're often told they don't belong in the industry and they're often told that they shouldn't be doing what they're doing and they're often told that they need to leave and that they're not welcome. So the more we can empower their stories and their journey and show their courage and their resilience, and that they're smashing down barriers, the more we can create change.
1: Yeah, it definitely sounds like there needs to be quite a lot more done, but you're really, really leading the way. You've spoken a bit about how it is a really heavily male-dominated industry, how you've been trying to escape that from when you started your career, but that's where you've really (laughs) ended back up. So how do you find working in a male-dominated industry? Do you have any examples or stories that you can share with everyone
2: listening and Any tips or tricks to try and navigate that? So through my education in positive psychology, that's really supported me to be able to work in this space. And I love working with men and really supporting men through the diversity and inclusion journey, helping them unpack their fears and discomforts and allowing them to have self-empathy for their journey through this change and accessing the concept of positive psychology is so so powerful so uh, a really great example was I was on site and a male was getting super super aggressive to me very opinionated on uh, whether women should be allowed in the sites or not and to the point that it's a oh and risk having women on site and it's going to increase site accidents and all of this kind of stuff so I really leant into the positive psychology space instead of like shrinking and feeling small and feeling like I didn't belong I shift the power dynamics and I thanked him I said thank you and he's like what for and I said well thank you for feeling safe and vulnerable enough around me to express such strong emotions. I'm really grateful that you feel comfortable expressing such passion around me. And it completely changed. He's like, what, 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 do you mean? I said, I'm really grateful that you feel comfortable in my presence to be able to show such strong emotions. And he's like, doesn't, that, 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 and it just diffused him. And he's like, well, what do you mean my emotions? And I said, well, there's obviously a lot of emotion here. So thank you for sharing that. And if you want to work together to unpack those emotions, I'm happy to do that with you. And he kind of like stormed off and then came back a little bit later and he's like, do you mind if we actually have a chat? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's have a chat. And he's like, I'm actually really scared about having women on site because I don't want them to get hurt and I don't want to do the wrong thing and I don't want to offend them and I don't want, you know, other men to see them as meat that they can just like attack and everything. So all of his aggression was actually coming from a place of, of, defending women and wanting to make sure that they didn't get hurt. Uh, He just didn't know how to express that. And he felt like a weak man for wanting to protect women. So he kind of turned that insecurity into aggression. So yeah, the the power of positive psychology in this space is so, so incredible and so, so powerful to really diffuse that aggression that often happens in male dominated environments because that's what they're taught. They're taught that toxic alpha male, that real stoic, that not talk about your feelings, that if you've either got happy or anger and you just, if there's an issue, just punch through it or use that aggression. So men haven't been given the skills to really start going well what's the deeper emotions that are driving this and it might be fear it might be concern it might be so many different other things so for the work that I do I really pride myself on creating that high level of psychological safety for men to really lean into understanding their emotional journey through this and then giving them the tools to be able to address that and deal with that and empower them to go So ask the question, like if you're really, really scared about getting into a small confined space with a female tradesperson, but you know you need to do that to be able to show her how to do a trade or show her how to do anything, just say, look, hey, it's going to actually be best if I get into that small confined space with you. Are you okay with that? So instead of going, she doesn't belong in there. She shouldn't be in that cavity. She shouldn't be doing this. She shouldn't be here. Because they're so scared about potentially getting in there and doing the wrong thing and a sexual harassment claim coming or the woman freaking out or doing things like that. Just ask that question or explain why it's important to have that interaction with that. And then again, for a lot of men who believe that toxic masculinity is the way to be a true man they're the men that will have the sexual harassment attitude towards women because they're trying to dominate women and they're trying to reinforce their masculinity. So I really enjoy doing the difficult work um, but necessary work to really support those men to shift their deep psychological rooted ways of believing about themselves into a positive masculine mindset And through that, the anti-feminine behaviour naturally just balls away as well. So when I do see high levels of sexual harassment or high levels of anti-feminine behaviour, it's a very red flag that this culture is highly driven by toxic masculinity and then using positive psychology to work on shifting the deep rooted psychological way that men are building their masculinity to a positive masculine mindset, which has more around mateship through positive connections, not mateships through negative connections. So instead of connecting with other males on site by degrading women, for example, which is a way that men in toxic masculine cultures connect, is connecting through talking about family, talking about footy or different positive ways. And you can see the shift in the cultures that happen. So, if anything, I know I'm a bit of a bull to a red flag. As soon as I see high levels of aggression, high levels of sexual harassment, high levels of bullying, I'm like, let me get in there and work with these guys because shifting that is the best thing for their well being. Because if you've got high levels of, sexual harassment, high levels of bullying. you have also going to have high levels of anxiety and high levels of mental ill-being because the men in that environment are going to have high levels of cortisol, high levels of fight or flight. Those men are adrenalized. They're out there. They're fighting. They're defending. And that's really bad for their psychological well-being as well. I can just
0: imagine, like, what you would have seen out there. <laughs> and I really want to embrace this positive psychology language and learn more about it you've got me really intrigued I think it's it sounds like an absolutely fantastic tool for many aspects of life to learn about positive psychology
1: it Um,
2: is and there's a very simple framework called PERMA so p-e-r-m-a so p stands for positive emotion so what are you doing every day to build your positive emotion e is about engagement so exactly, you know we've engaged and had this conversation and that's adding to our well-being r is about relationships and that's also the relationship with yourself and really focusing on where those relationships are m is the meaning and that meaning that's greater and bigger than yourself And then A is achievement and celebrating the small wins. Like, for example, the other day I needed to take a high-vis vest to go get our corporate sponsor logo printed on it. And I've been wanting to do this for months, and it's just been the annoying thing on my to-do list. And I went and finally did it. And people who don't practice living through perma would have just dropped it off and gone on to the next thing. But I took it as an opportunity to celebrate and be like, yeah. I finally did it. I finally dropped it off. And so when you live through a perma lens, looking for those really small moments, even if it's just like, you know, yeah, I've drunk a whole litre of water today. And as soon as you start living through that perma lens, life just changes. And I really reckon... I can operate at such a high level with my disability because I live through that lens.
0: That's so fantastic. That is so inspiring. Thank you so much, Hacia. Now I've got one final question for you. What advice would you give to your younger self with everything you know now about life and business and all the challenges you've been through?
2: Yeah, so really coming back to in every challenge, there's an opportunity to transform and to really embrace the challenges to really lean into them not to avoid them Uh, like the younger self that was that gave up on the law career i would have gone back to her and said don't you give up you find the opportunity in that challenge you find the opportunity in that discomfort and you lean into that space and you make that space yourself big, you know, you're, you're in a space where you're feeling that like you're so small and you're being crushed by everything around you, which was the high male environment. No, like push back against that feeling of being crushed, create your own space, be big, walk into a room and take up space. And I think that's really important for women to hear, to actually go and take up space and don't feel ashamed of doing it and the call to. Action for all women that are listening to this, and especially if you do have any form of health challenges, go and take up space. Don't feel like you don't belong. Don't feel like you can't take center stage because you absolutely can. So find the opportunities in your challenges and go and take up space.
1: That's incredible. And it's such a beautiful note to end on. I love it. Not only take up space, but you have the right to be center stage as well. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Haysia and you have absolutely motivated me. I feel like I can go run a marathon now. I'm not going to commit to that because I...
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, what an incredible woman you are. Just oh, amazing. You. Such a trailblazer.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you to everyone
1: who came and listened and we will talk next week.
2: Thanks so much, guys.